Mr. David Allen Green, hello, how are you? Hello, Mr. Ian Dunn, how are you? <laughs> yeah, not too bad, actually, not too bad. Feeling, uh, feeling fairly chipper. I find that these sort of crises sort of give you a sense of momentum. Yes, yes, uh, this is the... Uh, crisis which keeps on giving especially on the constitutional side yeah well i mean in a way i've actually never seen you be this happy i'm i'm delighted <laughs> uh i obviously it's very grave and one should be very solemn about what would happen oh, with with a no deal brexit but from a constitutional pundit's point of view this is absolutely splendid <laughs> i didn't even expect today's judgment and it's exploded before us uh and so yeah this is the crisis which keeps on giving okay let's see uh, can you let, let's break this whole thing down and explain it to us so i mean the first thing is um you sort of alluded on Twitter that there's quite a sort of different cultural and legal tradition between England and Scotland when it comes to these sort of areas of public law. Can you go into that a bit? Yeah, but by way of background, the United Kingdom uh, comprises three jurisdictions. There's the joint jurisdiction of England and Wales, uh, there's the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, and there's the jurisdiction of Scotland, and all three jurisdictions have their own systems of law. Uh, the law in Northern Ireland is broadly similar to uh, the law of England and Wales, but the law of Scotland is radically different from the law of England and Wales. It's based on sort of continental civilian legal ideas. Uh, I would feel happy talking about Irish law and Northern Irish law before I'd even touch Scottish law generally. It is that different to English law. And so you have separate legal traditions on a whole range of things, contract law, land law, and also constitutional law. Uh, Scotland only became part of the Union with England and Wales in, in 1707. Before 1707, it had had its own developed constitutional traditions, which are still as valid for Scotland as, say, Magna Carta is for, 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 mm. for England. They were united, there's a united parliament, but Scottish courts and Scottish judges can be quite uh, different in their approaches. Generally, this does not matter. Uh, because often there's no problem if a Scottish court rules in a certain way on a Scottish issue and an English court rules. But on constitutional issues, there is a problem. Uh, and so it would be left to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, which is the only court which has jurisdiction over all three of those jurisdictions. It has two Scottish judges in it and one Northern Irish judge. And it will be left to a the, the Supreme Court to sort this out and actually say, as a matter of law... Was the suspension of Parliament lawful or unlawful? What's the pertinent bit of the, the sort of the distinction between Scotland and English and Welsh law when it comes to this sort of case? Well, generally speaking, the Scottish judges are less deferent to things like the prerogative to the sovereignty of Parliament. It's a far more, shall we say, democratic in a way legal culture. They're not just going to nod along because the Crown has said something or Parliament has said something. English judges will tend to be a lot more deferent to uh, questions of which have some sort of political flavour. They will say it's non-justiciable. Hmm. Whilst from, for an unimpressed Scottish judge, there are no no-go areas in the Constitution. They will try and have a look at the merits. They won't just defer saying, oh, no, we can't touch this. What was... So, I mean, English cases fell. Yes. Um, what was, was their argument any different to the Scottish case? Well... First of all, we've got to take a step back and look at what they are trying to attack legally. What is the decision they are trying to uh, challenge? And the decision was to suspend Parliament by prorogue it. That decision is by, was by the Sovereign, by the Queen. The Queen is not judicially reviewable. She, mm. she, she, she cannot be brought into a court and actually challenged herself. 
And so somewhat artificially, Ian, you've got to go one step aside and say, well, it was the advice to the Queen which was flawed because the Queen, once advised, was effectively bound to grant the prorogation. That is potentially judicially reviewable. And so it goes to what the validity of that uh, advice was. The government's official position, which nobody or very few people can say with a straight face, is because that they wanted to prepare for a new session of Parliament, a new Queen's speech. Hmm. Uh, there is evidence that that is not the case. The English court, the High Court, where this was argued last week and the decision was handed down today in full, have said, well, this is non-judiciable. This is a political question. Uh, and they make what is actually fairly a good point is how can a court decide how long a prorogation should be? It's entirely a matter for political judgment. Whilst the Scottish judges have looked at the question differently, they're not really that concerned in the summary which has been handed down. We still haven't got the full judgment that's coming out on Friday. But in the summary, they have said, why was the prorogation requested? What was the motive? They're not really that concerned about the length of it. They've just gone straight for the motive behind the request. Hmm. And here, the government have basically made a huge mistake. Or to put it, as I said elsewhere earlier today, Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson cannot even abuse the Constitution competently. <laughs> <laughs> they have they requested this prorogation uh, on the basis of the Queen's speech when it was obvious that they were doing it for political reasons to close down Parliament to stop the scrutiny of the executive and the one up to uh, the date of Brexit, whereby automatic operation of law on the 31st of October, we are set to leave the European Union unless something happens. Drink. Uh, clink. <laughs> uh, Scottish judges had to look at whether it was what the motive was. They didn't care about that much about it being non-judiciable. An earlier Scottish judge had said, oh, no, this is all politics. But these senior judges said, I'm not impressed by that. We are looking at the merits of the case. And here we come, uh, in a sort of Sherlock Holmesian way, to the curious incident of the missing witness statement. Hmm. Because if I'm challenging you, Ian, you're a public authority, say, and I'm saying you are actually acting improperly, what you would do internally is get some senior person to swear a witness statement saying, well, this is actually how the decision was made. You'd put evidence into court. Curiously, the government couldn't find anybody to sign a witness statement in the Scottish proceedings. Uh, that was possibly because nobody would want to put themselves under peril of legal action because it's a criminal offence to sign a witness statement if you know it's false. And so there was no witness statement in Scotland. And what did the judges do? It's like these sort of drawing inferences from somebody electing to take the Fifth Amendment, uh, amendment the right to silence. Well, well, the judges said, well, there's evidence of improper motive and the government hasn't actually said why they did it. And so we can infer hmm. that it must have been for improper motive. And it effectively, they said that Boris Johnson had lied to the Queen. Not in terms, but that's, it was bad faith. It was an act of dishonesty. Boris Johnson is the first prime minister in constitutional history to be found by the court to have lied to the sovereign. 
You thought his first week was bad with six parliamentary defeats? <laughs> this is a, this is another league. No other prime minister has ever been found by a court to have lied to the sovereign. They don't use the word lie. They don't use the word dishonesty. But that is the inference from the bad faith and improper motives which they did find. The real reasons for the prorogation were not the ones given to the Queen. When it gets to the Supreme Court case, do you expect it to be on the merits of the case or do you think that ultimately it's all going to be on whether it's justiciable, i.e. whether they should even pay any attention in the first place? You have, obviously, the some of the very best uh, lawyers and judges in, in the country sitting on the Supreme Court. The It's been announced today there's going to be a panel of nine. Uh, so this is more than the usual three or five. Hmm. Not as much as the 11 they had in the first Miller case, but it's going to be a quite powerful panel, including two Scottish judges and uh, and also one Northern Irish judge. They are not going to deal with the case lightly. They're not going to get out of it on a technicality. They will want to hear full argument on both whether it's justiciable and on the abuse of uh, process, the un uh, improper motive. Uh, it may well be once they've heard full argument that they then decide to deal with it on the non-judiciable point but they will want to hear the whole of it not least because that is what the scottish court has found and mm. the scottish case will be appealed at the same time as the english case and i also understand there's a case coming over from northern ireland as well so yes it's going to be in the round and what often happens with this sort of case is if the facts of the case make a judge feel uncomfortable they will search around for a remedy the best way to win in advocacy often is to make a judge feel there's a problem here, what can I do? When they come up, is it by majority vote, if, they, if it's not unanimous or something? Does it just turn into a majority vote with those yes, judges? Yes, the reason why they sit in an odd number is just in case there is a tie. I see. Bizarrely, there are some courts in England which have two judges sitting, and I was once involved in a case on the famous Twitter joke trial mm -hmm. when the judges differed. And when it was, Keir Starmer was more of a villain than a hero. Yeah. Yes. And the judges, there were two judges and nobody had ever thought through, well, what happens if they disagree? <laughs> 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 yes, but no, it'll be nine. Uh, but what will happen in practice is on the Scottish law points, the judges of the Supreme Court will defer to the Scottish judges. On the Northern Irish points, they will defer to the Northern Irish judge. And so you won't have a situation where the English judges will decide what Scottish law is against from the, uh, the Scottish judges. Do you have any expectation of which way that will go? No, I think it's too close to call. Which, if you'd asked me a month ago, or even a couple of weeks ago, I would have said the chances of a judicial review successful of a prorogation decision would be zero. Hmm. Because it's a sort of dusty corner of the Constitution which nobody would ever even think of litigating because it was only ever there to just close one parliamentary session and open the next. And it's just almost pure political judgment as to when the new Queen's speech could be. But for it to be used for this wrongful purpose uh, may jolt the judges because there's a deeper issue here which about where is sovereignty located within the Constitution. And if sovereignty ultimately is held to be within Parliament, is it open to the Crown using prerogative to shut down uh, Parliament from scrutinising it? If it turns into a how long it should have been question, then I think the Supreme Court will follow the English judges saying, well, we can't decide how long it is going to be. But if they follow the Scottish approach of actually saying, well, the very fact of it being granted, this prorogation being made on the back of a false request, regardless of how long it is, 
that is where I think they might bite. Um, what's happening between now and Tuesday in terms of recall of Parliament? I presume everyone seemed terribly confused today as, as to how this would play well, out. Well, there's two answers to that. On, on the face of it, a court has declared something to be unlawful and, and void, and so you, the Speaker could just turn up, open the shop, let everybody in, just like a shop opening on the bank holiday. It wouldn't, mm. That is, on on the face of it, what would happen, because... The thing which was being challenged no longer exists at law. It just disagree, disappears in this puff of legal logic because it is now void. It is It has been declared to be unlawful and thereby void. However, the spokes, a spokesperson for the Speaker says it is still for Downing Street to decide when uh, Parliament is, is called back. There was obviously some demands for it to be called Come back. There was a group of MPs who actually stood outside saying, "We want to work hmm. today." Uh, what I think will happen in practice is everybody's going to wait until the Supreme Court case. It may well be that we get a decision on the day. Uh, I think that's unlikely because there's nine justices and they want to discuss something. But it may be that we get the decision quite quickly, with the full reasons being given some time afterwards, and that will be it. There's nowhere for the government to appeal to. They can't appeal to, say, the European Court of Justice, which would be quite funny in the circumstances. Mm. But they can't. It's not an EU issue. Shame. Shame. I really would enjoy them making that appeal. Um, if they were to do the whole sort of Boris Johnson... Final question now. If Boris Johnson was to do his whole, I don't care what happens, I'm going to steamroller ahead, if the government was to say, well, we're going to pay no attention to that, what would be the option? Well, if... The Prime Minister disregarded a, a declaration of the court, then he would be acting unlawfully. One thing I'd expect almost straight away is for the Lord Chancellor and the law officers to, 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 to resign. Uh, you would have a constitutional crisis, by which I mean you'd have something, an unstable situation, the outcome of which we cannot guess, hmm. because there are no rules there at the moment to actually regulate the outcome. I think a political journalist, uh, if you can think of one, Ian, should put to Downing Street... Uh, if the Supreme Court finds, like the Scottish Court, that Boris Johnson has misled the sovereign, hmm. he should resign. It just seems to me that is a, just like lying to the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. It is that serious. It is like a, a, a profumo situation. Mm. If the court finds in its reasoning that, that the Prime Minister has misled the sovereign, then I can't see how a Prime Minister can, can survive. Mm. There should be a resignation. And now, because the lack of majority is minus 44... It, we can't assume it will be a Tory who will be asked to form the next government. It might be... There's all a range of people who could form the next government. You know, John Burko will be out of a job after the, after the <laughs> 31st. Uh, or Kenneth Clark or Harriet Harman or whatever. But Boris Johnson is the first Prime Minister in constitutional history to have been found by a court to have misled the sovereign. If that is upheld on on Supreme Court then there, must, there should be a new Prime Minister. I do expect that the ramifications of him trying to sort of carry on regardless will be such that he'll be brought down, especially if the Lord, Lord Chancellor resigns. Mm -hmm. Great well, thank you very much, Mr David Allen-Green. I hope the jagged horrors of constitutional crisis continue to give you pleasure. I, can't f I, I would say I can't think of a bigger unexpected constitutional explosion than the one we had today, but... If I say that, then we're going to have some glorious examples of constitutional tomfoolery in the next few weeks. Uh, and the reason is ultimately simple. We have, within the Constitution at the moment, an unstable entity. 
the referendum mandate, which does not sit well within the uh, representative democracy. And whilst that referendum mandate is there, it will infect everything. It has created an unstable situation. And until that mandate is either discharged or superseded by a new mandate, we are going to keep on having these constitutional clashes because we are the constitution is being asked to deal with things it, it has never been formed to deal with. Mm. It's almost like this whole thing was a terrible idea. Thank you very much. Thank you.